Turn in your Bible to Nehemiah 13. We are going to look at the second thing that Nehemiah points out. They've blown it in. Um, I mentioned last week that I kind of wish there's like a part of me that wishes Nehemiah ended with chapter 12 because chapter 12 is kind of a high note. Uh, there's, there's, uh, Worship is reestablished, proper worship is reestablished, and people seem to be living for God and not, excuse me, and not themselves. They said, Lord, we, we devote ourselves to make this life about you and not us. And so that was kind of an encouragement to Christians even today. Is that our attitude? Do we say the same things to the Lord? And like Jason mentioned, Nehemiah had left for some period of time. He was out of town. Uh, anywhere really, I think probably from, from three to ten years, somewhere in there. He's gone back with the king and he comes back and he finds Jerusalem in kind of a miserable state. Now they may have not seen it as that, but that's really what it is. And if you, if you just kind of flip back to chapter 10 for a moment, we're not going to read any passage from there, but you can just kind of skim through and see the people were saying, we recommit ourselves to three important things, three aspects of this covenant that God had made with their people long before. And now in chapter 13, Nehemiah goes kind of in reverse order and, and shows them, look, here's where we're at. Here's how this has been broken. And now here's how to correct it. So when he goes, like we talked about last week at the beginning of the chapter, and he finds Eliashib, the high priest, letting Tobiah live in the temple, he gets righteously angry and he starts throwing furniture out, but it doesn't end there. Right? And it maybe easily could have ended there, he, but he doesn't. He just says, get this out of here. Let's replace it with what's good. And that's what the Lord wants to do in our lives all the same. Get rid of this stuff that shouldn't be in here and put in it what's right and what's good and what's honoring to God and pleasing to him. He found what was going on. And in verse 11, he has this, this hard question. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? Why is the house of God forsaken? And uh, you find out, we find out and see that Eliashib and really the people in general have really slid into compromise. Things were not good any longer. And Nehemiah uh, uh, responded with, I think, appropriate action. It's a, as I mentioned last week, it's a little fierce, kind of like Jesus in the New Testament clearing out the temple with the money changers. That's kind of, I mean, certainly our culture would look at that to, and today and say, that's harsh. Like, he needs to control himself. And yet, this was righteous anger. Because no one had offended Nehemiah personally. They had offended the house of God. This, what God had said, they were not doing any longer. And that offended Nehemiah, and that needed correction. And so, now, we move from that to this failure in verse 15 through 22, to properly keep and honor the Sabbath. And so let's read that together. And then we'll pray. Chapter 13, verse 15 through 22. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food 
Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much for us here that I pray we would not overlook it, that I pray that we would not be distracted, that our minds would not be on the things to come this day, but instead that you would help us to focus right here and now on your word, because there's life to be found here. There's instruction, there's uh, correction, there's training to be found here so that we might be complete men and women of God, mature in all things. That's a work that has to come by your spirit, Lord. And so we pray that we are people who desire maturity, who desire your word, who humble themselves in correction of your word, from your word. And so I pray that as your word is now been read over us, that your spirit would now help it to make sense inside of us, that we might then go and live it out. Help us this day for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I read, I read this passage and I've, I've read this story so far with, with hope and yet a degree of sadness, a degree of disappointment. Right, Because Nehemiah shouldn't have to have come back in after these years and made these corrections, and yet he does. And is there, I feel like there's some disappointment here, certainly on his behalf, but just in my own life, I can look back and I can see this same story play out. And you're, you're probably the same, where you see, man, I, there was a point in my life where there was joy in serving others. Like there was, there was joy in reading the word of God, in obeying Christ's commands and in doing these things. And it didn't always keep on that way. Um, and it's oftentimes after a really kind of good season with the Lord that we encounter really hard seasons, really difficult moments. And I, I don't think I'm alone in this. Uh, I see some of you shaking your heads in agreement like you've experienced this too. I think, I think history kind of shows that this is sort of what happens. Two things I want to just think back to. Uh, number one, think back to Moses and the Ten Commandments and the golden calf. Like Moses is literally on a mountaintop <laughs> receiving the, the Ten Commandments, hearing from God himself, and he comes down the mountain and what does he find? 
his brother, whom he trusted, has led the people a 180 away from what God would have for them. And the very gifts that God had given them from the Egyptians as they were leaving the city, they've now melted down and turned into a golden calf. And they're saying, this is our God. And so you see, you see that juxtaposition of Moses in a very close relationship with God and then very shortly after he comes down and, and in anger he breaks these, these tablets. He sees the discouragement and the disobedience of God's people and he's affected very deeply. Second thing is to think back to in the New Testament, think, to, think back to the book of Acts, specifically chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. If you remember that situation, the word of God is being preached in the city and people are being moved by the spirit. People are, the, the church is growing and pe- people are sharing what they have with one another, right? I don't know that we've seen this kind of reality in the church in a lot of years, but what was going on here was nothing short of a miracle. People are in need, and so other church members who have more are selling property or giving up things and giving it to others who are in need, and the word of God is going out and lives are being changed. It's a wonderful thing. And then you've got this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they they seem to want the reputation of holiness and generosity without actually displaying and having holiness and generosity. And so they claim to do something. They're wrapped up in this deceit and judgment falls on them in an incredible and unique and horrific way. Now that doesn't stifle the spirit of God, the word of Christ being preached. It actually, the, the town outside of the, the people of God look at this and say, whoa, there's something to this God that they're talking about. So that doesn't disrupt the the work of God, and yet it shows us that things can change in a moment, right? And now, don't get me wrong, the flip side is true. Things can change in a moment for the positive. And I, I think that most of us have experienced that in our lives too, where some dramatic situation happens and we think it's hopeless and something changes and God makes a way. And yet the vast majority, I would say, of times, it's our own selfishness and disobedience that usually throws a wrench in things, and things change not for the better but for the worse. And I I think these cases in biblical history, I think our own personal uh, testimonies of these sorts of hard things kind of line up with what's going on in, in Nehemiah chapter 13 at the moment. D.A. Carson describes a situation in this chapter like this. He says, Reformation and revival has drifted off into lethargy and spiritual indifference. And I I bet we can see that in our own lives at times. Maybe some of us are there right now. Maybe you feel lethargic in your faith, indifferent in your faith. Once there was revival and reformation and things were good and you felt close to God and now you just kind of feel worn out. Well, Let's keep reading. Let's keep looking because I think the Lord has something for us this morning in this. The people in Jerusalem here had all but abandoned proper worship and giving. And now in these verses we find that they were valuing profit over purity. 
They were buying and selling and working on the Sabbath. This is a day that was supposed to be observed for their comfort and rest, and it had slid into just another day. Another day to make money, to wake up, buy and sell. Um, Nikki and I, we share a calendar. I don't know if you can do this. You knew you could do this. Um, this is something that I'm going to recommend in premarital counseling going forward because uh, it can be a big help. But you share a calendar between you and your spouse. So we've we've been able to do this. And it helps us kind of keep track of what the other person's doing. We're not double booking our time, those sorts of things. It's not a perfect system, but it certainly has helped. But you can, you can set up a recurring event in your calendar, right? So Nikki and I will celebrate 19 years of marriage on August the 7th this year. Did I get it right? Very good. Okay. On August the 7th, 19 years. And so there is, as you can imagine, with my forgetfulness, there is a reoccurring event in our calendar that says, hey, this is your anniversary. Now, imagine, imagine if that day comes and goes, and I make no acknowledgement of what's in my calendar. Trouble, that's right, you're right. But But that day comes, and maybe I see it in my calendar, and I make no mention of it to my wife. I, I don't make a big deal out of it. I don't talk to her about it at all. Well, you, yeah, trouble is a good word. It would not go well for me, okay? Um, if I was to do that, I think something would be fairly wrong in our relationship. I would be sending the message that I care very little for her or what our marriage and the day that we celebrate it, what, what that represents, now, the Israelites did not have smartphones with recurring calendar events. I get that. And yet, they had a built-in, recurring, weekly event that was supposed to be significant in their lives. And here in Nehemiah 13, we see that they were essentially ignoring it, treating it as just another day on the calendar. Something was significantly wrong with their relationship with God. They were sending the message that they cared very little for the Lord, that they cared very little for what his day that he was, they were told to set aside what it stood for and what it represented. A day that was supposed to be set apart was now just about getting ahead. Let me do more today so that I can provide, maybe under the guise of providing for my family. I got to provide, so I got to work even on this important day. They were supposed to rest. They were supposed to trust God. Remember in chapter 10, that was one of the points of the covenant. They said, we will do this. And the point of it was so that they would trust the Lord. But now we see that foreigners are coming and selling and people in Israel are buying it. Now, just to be clear, I want us to understand, it wasn't the buying and selling of goods that was the problem. There were plenty of times throughout the rest of the week where that was perfectly fine. Under the, you know, the, the guidelines that God had put for his people. But that wasn't the problem here. They, they weren't like, it wasn't like they were buying and selling things that they shouldn't be. Like unclean stuff or, or whatever. That wasn't the issue. At its core, the problem was the pri- was priorities. The priorities of God's people. That was what was going on at the core. This was a problem of priorities for God's people. 
buying, selling, making money, spending money, these things became more important to them than remembering and honoring God. And look at verse 17 with me. Nehemiah confronts them, the leaders especially, and he says, what's this evil thing that you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. In the last situation, he confronted Eliashib and he said, what is this evil thing that you're doing? Letting him stay in the temple chambers. Now it's another sin point that he's making light of or bringing to light, I should say. He says, what is this evil thing? It's evil to profane the Sabbath. Now we don't use the word profane all that often anymore. Here's what it means. To profane the Sabbath literally means to wound it, to break it to stain it, to pollute it. You're making the Sabbath into something that it's not supposed to be, is what he's saying. You're not honoring it properly. And then he says, this isn't the first time that your people have had, our, our people have had a problem with it either. Look at verse 18. He, re, he reminds them, he says, your fathers did the same kinds of things. And what's the effect? What happens as a result of profaning the Sabbath, of not treating it like they're supposed to? Well, he says that their city was in like shambles as a result. Decades and decades of problems, of captivity, of decay. Their city was in a desolate state because of this. He says now, because of these most more recent acts, you are bringing more wrath on us. By profaning the Sabbath. This was a big deal. We might not think so in 2023, but this was a big deal. And it reinforces one of the points that we made last week with that, that idea of throwing a pebble onto a calm body of water and the ripple effect and how that moves out and it affects things as you go out. Sin is certainly personal, but it's almost never only personal. Do you understand what I mean? It always affects those around you. We, in our pride, and I'm just as guilty as you are, in our pride, we think, I, I can, I have control of this. What a lie we believe. I think I can, I can contain this. I can hide this so it doesn't affect those around me. We're guilty of it. And yet, this, this shows us you're wrong. Friends, if, if you're hearing this today and you're experiencing that in your own life and you're trying to hide away an addiction or a sin issue and you're saying, I've got it under control, let me just warn you, you're wrong. You don't. You can't. Without the Spirit of God coming in and using His Word to cut that stuff out, you are not in control. And Nehemiah is telling the people, this has been a problem before and it's going to be a problem again if something doesn't change. What we do affects those around us. Another pastor I, I read this week said, when such open sin is just winked at and left uncorrected among God's people, it invites the correcting hand of God. Nehemiah is saying, you're inviting more wrath as a result of this. Friends, by keeping sin tucked away and our hearts hardened, we're inviting the hand and the wrath of God to come in and make drastic changes. Oftentimes we don't like that, but we need it. And so our call is to humble ourselves and let God do his work in our hearts. And so he is warning them. He says, look, something's got to change or you're just going to keep going through the same cycle of history again. 
Man, we can look at the world, we can look at United States history, and we can see the same kind of patterns are coming back around, right? If we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. As God's people, we shouldn't be. Oftentimes we are, but this is an encouragement of Nehemiah and of the Lord to take some action. Now, Nehemiah is a man of action, right? We've seen that. He starts with prayer almost every time. But in our last message last week, he does something. So he says, this is not good that you're letting the enemy stay in the temple. And he does something about it, right? He takes the chairs, and I think of Bobby Knight, the basketball coach who chucked a chair across the floor. He takes the chair, and he chucks it out. He's a man of action. He does something about it. It's appropriate. But he does, he makes practical steps to keep the, the, the people accountable. Look at what he does in verse 19, 20, and 21. He has the gates of the city closed before the Sabbath. There's no chance you're going to get out and sell your stuff or go out and buy stuff because he has the gates closed. And then he sets up a guard, a personal guard, and he says, don't let anybody in or out until after the Sabbath is over. So he's making practical changes here, accountability to the people. There's no way to misinterpret what's happening here. This isn't just a suggestion of Nehemiah's. This is an empty warning where he's like, if you don't do this, bad stuff's going to happen. He says, that's true, and now I'm not going to let you do this. There's action here. He means business. And we see this in verse 20 and 21. Some people, uh, probably outsiders, are coming, and they're used to, to bring in their stuff they're wheeling their cart in on the Sabbath and they're expecting their regulars to come out and to buy from them. And the gates are closed though. So they think, well, this is a momentary thing. It's just a fad. We'll, we'll wait them out. And so for at least a couple of Sabbath days, it seems, they come and they camp outside the gates. They're, they're hoping, you know, maybe somebody's going to sneak them in. They're hoping maybe somebody's going to sneak out to buy their stuff. And, Nehemiah sees what's going on and he, just like when he threw Tobiah's stuff out of the chambers of the temple, his level of response here I think is appropriate to what's going on, to the problem. He understood the evil that was going on and that it invoked the wrath of God. How can you sit still and remain inactive when you see that this is bringing about the hand of God? You... If you haven't already, we should be drawing some parallels between our culture today and what's going on here. But his, his response, I think, is appropriate. And so he warns the people that are coming and camping outside the gates. He says, look, if you do it again, I'm going to lay hands on you. Now, just so we're all on the same page, Nehemiah is not talking about inviting them in for a prayer meeting where he lays his hands on them. That's not what he means. You guys understand what he means. He's he's going to physically remove them. And I don't know what that would have looked like, but he's going to physically remove them from the premises if they're back, if they come back to do what he's uh, telling them to stop. He's not threatening this because he's some old crotchety man at this point. Uh, He recognizes the significance of the day of keeping the Lord's commands, of honoring God and honoring the Sabbath. And he's already cleansed the temple of the evil that Eliashib was doing, and he is apparently ready to cleanse the gates 
and to cleanse their understanding of the Sabbath and to enforce biblical Sabbath on them. Now look at verse 22 as we move through it. This verse ends the record of Nehemiah's second reform here. And he commands the Levites, he says, clean, cleanse yourselves from all, uncer- all ceremonial uncleanness. Um, be ready in a ceremonial sense to perform the duties of your office on the Sabbath. And so I think it's interesting. He's got his own personal guards set up at the city to oversee practical obedience. They're, people aren't going to leave or enter. But then he's also got the Levites stationed, I would think, at the gates of the temple here. These are the gates that he's talking about. That's why he's got the Levites there. Because he's got them to oversee spiritual obedience. So his practical guard is enforcing practical obedience at the city gates. And now at the temple gates, he's got people set up to oversee spiritual obedience. He's helping the people to set up parameters and accountability for how they act and how they live. And I think this is all in an effort to properly realign the people's priorities. Now, you guys hear the word priorities regularly, right? Students, teenagers, you're being encouraged to really understand and shape your priorities. Now, what's important to you? Is it sports? Is it school? Is it a significant other? Uh, Is it the word of God? Is it living for Christ? You have a lot of options on what you center your life around. But as people who say, I love Jesus, there's only one thing that our priorities ought to circle around, right? It's God. It's the word. It's, it's actually living like we say we believe. And so Nehemiah is helping the people to get, get this in their heads and to walk it out practically. Look at verse 22 again. He, he prays a similar prayer as he did after the first issue. He says, He asks for God to remember him according to the greatness of his steadfast love, of God's steadfast love. Nehemiah was doing work here, right? We can't overlook that. He's throwing chairs out of the temple. He's physically threatening to remove people from the premises. He's He's putting action behind what he says he believes, and he's doing his very best to lead and motivate the people to do what's right. But even in that, he seems to recognize that God's favor is not given based on his own work or merit. It's not given based on what he reforms the people to do. Now, he's doing work to do that, but he recognizes that God's favor is given just solely on the greatness of his steadfast love. He doesn't have to work for it. His work is a result of God's love in his life. And when we look at all that Nehemiah says and does here, there may be a temptation to look at it as if Nehemiah is kind of moving towards legalistic things, right? Hey, you can't buy on the Sabbath. You can buy the day before, you can buy the next day, but you can't. And so there there may be a temptation for for us to look at that and say, man, he's kind of moving in a, a legalistic direction, don't you think? seems like he's overly concerned maybe about the letter of the law when it comes to obedience to the Sabbath. But I think that if we understand the way that the Sabbath was supposed to function, I don't, I don't know that we would think this way about him. There's a helpful comment in the Christ-centered commentary I want to read to you. It says, The Sabbath was intended to be a protected space in which Israel could meditate on the Bible and rehearse the mercies of God. 
Sabbath was for worship. The Sabbath was to be hallowed, made holy, so that the people could enjoy their God. This concern for the Sabbath, therefore, is not legalistic. This concern for the Sabbath, rather, is for the good of the people. The concern for the Sabbath is for the people to know God. That's why Nehemiah cared so deeply about this day, is because he understood this is a way that we know God better. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Do we think he was tired after creation, at creation, after the sixth day? Well, no. God is unlimited in power. He's not tired. What was the point of his rest? Well, it was to remind us of what we need. We are created not as infinitely powerful beings, but as dependent beings on the Lord. And so, the Sabbath is for the people to know God. I, I think Jesus really makes this clear. In the New Testament, when he's walking with his disciples and they're eating some grain on the Sabbath and people call them out. These were legalistic people. And they call them out and Jesus makes this comment that just really enrages them. And he says, look, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. So that means for us that in Christ, we're no longer bound to the Sabbath the way that the Old Testament saints were. We don't have to lock up our wallets on Sundays. Guys, we don't have to cook extra on Saturday so that you don't have to cook on Sunday. Now, you wouldn't be wrong to do those things. Don't let me, don't get me wrong. But Hebrews is, is, is crystal clear in the, this concept, the overarching concept in what we're talking about, the book of Hebrews. Because of Jesus, we don't approach God the same way anymore. We don't come to God the same way that these people in the Old Testament do. Now, to some degree, we do. We're saved by grace through faith, just like they were. And yet, we come to God, as it says there, boldly, with confidence, knowing why. Because our efforts are good. Did Nehemiah say, Lord, remember all the good for me, for myself, because of what I've done? No, he says, because of your eternal, steadfast love. That's what he attributes it to, and that's what he's looking for. We just, we don't approach God the same way anymore. However, I think there's some really practical and important principles that we can take from this just to think about. Number one, and probably the biggest one that we need to take from this, is it's right and good for God's people to, to set regular time aside to just slow down and focus on him. It, that is a good thing to do. And if that means that you got to cook extra on Saturday so that you don't have to worry about that on Sunday, then do it. You're not obligated to do that. But if that helps you to, to slow down on a Sunday and focus on the Lord, then do it. Because we're called to focus on his provision who provides your job, your income, your ability to provide? Who is actually faithful? And so the time that we set aside to slow down and remember and focus on him should be a time when we remember his faithfulness. It's a time when as we gather with the, the body of Christ that we, we uh, generally and uh, corporately remind each other of his goodness in our lives 
Your life is not perfect. I'm sure of it. You're, you're walking through difficult seasons, some of you. And so when we come to church, when we're with the body of Christ, we need this kind of reminder. We need to be reminded God is still good. He's still faithful. He still provides. And as we've seen from Nehemiah, this, this might include, though, putting some boundaries around our time to make sure that this happens. So you might not need to lock away your wallets on Sundays, but maybe you need to lock away your phone for a little bit. And maybe it's on a different day. Maybe it's every day. You need to lock that away and get, just get away from the constant distractions so that you can focus on the Lord. You know, maybe you need to build into your schedule time to sit and to read and to reflect on and meditate and study God's word. If you aren't already, maybe the Lord is leading you to do that even longer or even more. But it's right and good for God's people to just set side, set time aside to just slow down and focus on him and his word. If we're not being proactive in doing this, guys, you know you're going to be reactive. And you, you're never prepared for all that life throws at you. We were, I was just talking with Tommy this morning about how every summer I'm tricked into thinking, school's out, we're going to have time to do such and so. You guys with me? And it, it doesn't, ha- doesn't happen that way. Life has a way of filling the gaps. There's a vacuum. And if we don't intentionally insert our relationship with God as priority in our lives, something else will take its place. We're going to be reactive if we're not proactive. And when we're reactive, we can often and quickly find we feel like we're just barely keeping our head above water. You know the feeling? If this is how you feel this morning, that you're just barely keeping your head above the water, please know, like Nehemiah says in verse 22, uh, please, please know that the greatness of God's steadfast love is for you. Be reminded of it. Sit under it. And here's a warning this morning. Don't fool yourself into thinking that it'll be different tomorrow if you don't make any changes today, confess your sins to the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the gift of salvation and by his spirit, for his glory, dedicate proper attention to learning his ways and walking in them. Because if we learn anything from chapter 13 of Nehemiah, it's that it's easy to talk the talk and not as easy to walk the walk. As you slow down and focus on him, I I really think, and we see evidence of it here, I really think our priorities will be realigned, right? Because if, if we're saying, Lord, your word is more important than the 12 things I need to do on my schedule today, then whatever it might be, if we're saying, Lord, you take precedence and priority over this, well, guess what? That's going to affect the rest of your life. Because, and, and you all who have been able to spend time in the morning in God's word, or whether that's listening to it on your way to, to, to work, or whether that's actually opening your Bible, or whether it's reading it on your phone, you know 
that you're prepared to face the day in a different way those mornings than when you don't get that. Our priorities get realigned under the authority of God's word. And just like Nehemiah, don't think, even when you get it right, don't think that it's your righteousness alone that causes God to spare you or to show you favor like he mentions in verse 22. A sinner is spared because Christ has imparted his righteousness to them. He has transferred his righteousness when they believe. A sinner is shown favor, not because of their work, not because of your effort, but because of what Christ has already done on the cross and on the empty tomb. Through the empty tomb. And we are simply called to believe it, to confess it, and then to live it. Are you doing these things today? In our time of reflection as the worship team comes back up to lead us in another song, think that through this morning, that question. Do I believe these things? Do I believe that it's the righteousness of Christ and not my own that's truly saving me, saved me? Do I believe and do I confess that this is true? Or when the rubber hits the road and I'm confronted with something at my job or in my family where I could stand for Christ and maybe cause some trouble or I could keep quiet and let it just slide, am I confessing Jesus to be true? Am I confessing his word to be right? And then maybe most importantly, am I living it out? Is there evidence in my life that God has changed me? Or do I act and look and talk and walk just like the world? Let's pray. God, you challenge us with hard things. You've done that today in my heart. And I believe you're challenging us as your people with the same kinds of things. And Lord, my prayer first off today is that if people are listening and, and they don't believe it, they feel like they are just they can hardly keep their head above water. They don't know what they're going to do tomorrow. They don't understand why life is so hard. Lord, I would pray that you would convict their heart of sin, grant them the gift of repentance, and save them. That they might humble themselves and give themselves over to you. They would confess Jesus boldly and happily and that they might then go and live for him. This is what the Jews in Jerusalem struggled with. Their, their priorities were out of whack. And it was leading them down sinful roads. And so I pray, Lord, if that describes me or my brothers and sisters or those listening this morning. I pray that you would realign our priorities to what's right. To what's good, pleasing, and perfect. And that we might see... Your loving kindness more than anything. Lord, help us to sit in it and we give you thanks for it. Change us as a result of it. In Jesus' name, amen.